This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. Joining me momentarily in the second segment of today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to chat with Carl about the prospects for a V-shaped economic recovery. You probably noticed that we had a better than expected, I should even say much better than expected jobs report. And I'm going to ask Carl if that means we are going to see the V-shaped economic recovery that so many analysts and pundits were hopeful of. And I'm also going to chat with Carl about what he views as inevitable changes coming to the healthcare system and Medicare in particular. So if you are listening to this today and you're on Medicare or getting close to the point that you will be qualifying for Medicare, you won't want to miss what Carl has to say. If you're a new listener, this is where we work hard to educate you on what's going on in the economy and the financial markets so that you might better position yourself to become financially independent or to know better how to invest your IRA or 401k. To that end, to educate you, we also have a website that I would encourage you to check out. It's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. It's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And at that website, you can listen to all the past podcasts of this program, and you can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch, and I would encourage you to do that as well. Again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You know, here on the program every week, I get to interview some very bright analysts and authors, and I've come to realize that these analysts tend to belong to one of two distinctly different camps, or should I say schools of thought. There are those analysts who believe that massive levels of debt in the private sector and public sector will be the dominant economic force moving ahead. Those analysts who believe that debt will be the dominant economic force moving ahead are expecting deflation. See, excessive debt levels are deflationary. Banks, which have debt as assets, can become insolvent when massive levels of debt go unpaid. And of course, when debt goes unpaid, the money supply shrinks as well. It might surprise you to know that over 95% of today's money is debt. It's only money as long as the debt gets repaid. If the debt doesn't get repaid, then the money disappears from the financial system. Now, the other camp, the other school of thought among analysts are those who are of the mind that excessive money creation will continue and it will become the dominant monetary or economic force in the future. You see, at a certain level of money creation, inflation is the only possible outcome. Now here's the rub. No one knows for certain what level of money creation tips the scales from deflation to inflation. I have predicted for a very long time, and in the book Revenue Sourcing, I predict that we will see a period of deflation followed by a period of inflation. However, there will be some inflation along with the deflation, and we're starting to see that. If you've been to the grocery store, 
Maybe you looked at the newspaper last week, the local newspaper, and there was a headline article in many papers that said that food prices rose more in one month than at any time since World War II. Now, part of that is supply chain disruption. Part of that is inflation. But nevertheless, if you look at other articles like transportation services, like automobiles, we're seeing prices decline. So in order to have inflation, there has to be demand. So for a long time, I have said we're going to see a period of deflation followed by a period of inflation. Now, there is not, as I said, a common, widely accepted opinion. That's why in the book Revenue Sourcing, I advocate using a revenue revenue sourcing map, which is a technique that you can use to protect yourself from either outcome. See, in a deflationary environment, stocks typically decline. In an inflationary environment, saved money investments can lose purchasing power. So in the inflation bucket, to protect yourself from inflation, you need an asset that will perform well in an inflationary environment. In other words, its purchasing power will increase exponentially when compared to the declining purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. Now, there's no doubt that we find ourselves presently at financial extreme levels. We have extreme debt levels, and we have extreme money creation. And once you fully understand the economic data, it's absolutely impossible to imagine, in my view, how investing the traditional way will produce the same outcome that it's delivered historically. That's why on today's program, I'm offering the revenue sourcing book to those who are listening for free. All you have to do is go to revenuesourcingbook.com, revenuesourcingbook.com. Let me know where to mail it, and I will be glad to get you your free copy. Now, let's go to the deflation bucket, and let's take a look at a topic that you should be paying attention to. And I don't bring up this topic to alarm you, but to make you aware of the potential problem. The issue, of course, is the solvency of the banking system because as debt goes unpaid, banks lose assets. This was the issue during the financial crisis, and just looking at the data, it's hard to imagine how this will not be an issue again, and perhaps even soon. Now, Egon von Greyerts, who's the founder of Matterhorn Capital Management in Zurich, recently noted in a piece that he published that there is a very strong relationship. There's a very strong historic correlation between the unemployment rate and commercial bank loan delinquency rates. In fact, when you go back to 1985 and you plot these two items on a chart, the unemployment rate and the commercial bank loan delinquency rate, They are very tightly correlated. During the financial crisis, the official unemployment rate was just under 10%, and the commercial bank loan delinquency rate was between 7 and 8%. Now, as I'll talk about with Carl Denninger in the next segment, while there is some debate about the true current unemployment rate, given the K-1 
calculation methodologies used, and we'll talk about those in the next segment coming up in just about two minutes. We think that we could see the commercial bank loan delinquency rate exceed 12%. That's huge. Mortgage loan delinquency rates more than doubled from March to May. They went from just under 4% to just under 8% of all mortgages now delinquent. And keep in mind, that's while the federal unemployment benefits of an extra $600 a week are being paid to those who are unemployed. Those benefits are set to stop at the end of the month. Now, can you imagine where the delinquency rate might go should those benefits not be extended? I mean, an extra $600 a week or $2,400 a month will easily make the mortgage payment of most folks. I expect that we'll see mortgage delinquency rates jump significantly once all this federal money that's been pumped into the economy in response to coronavirus starts to dry up. Now, most of the loans that are currently delinquent have not been reported by the banks. But these bad loans will begin to be reported over the next quarter or two, and that's when I think that the economic realities of where we are will will begin to show, will begin to emerge. Now, if you're just joining me, uh, in the next segment, I will have Mr. Carl Denninger with me. We'll talk about the future of the healthcare system and Medicare. We'll talk about what the prospects are for a V-shaped economic recovery. And I also want to remind you, if you're just tuning in, that this week I am offering a copy of my number one best-selling book on Amazon, Revenue Sourcing, a Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy. For free, all you need to do to get your copy of the book is go to revenuesourcingbook.com and let me know where to mail you your copy. The website, again, is revenuesourcingbook.com. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and I have joining me again today on the program returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific commentator. You can read his blog at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you much for having me on. Carl, let's talk first about uh, the rather surprising employment numbers that came out recently. Uh, Are we going to see a V-shaped recovery, as so many pundits and analysts are predicting or hoping for, in your view? Oh, God, no. Um, You know, look, we... (laughs) We, uh, we, we had a, you know, very nice looking employment report on the headline, um, uh, from a standpoint of, you know, what came out, uh, just shortly ago. Um, however, let's, let's talk a little bit about where this, uh, where this gain came from. Leisure and hospitality was 2.1 million, uh, about two fifths of the gain. Okay. And essentially, uh, in food services and drinking places, that was one and a half million. Now, I might remind people that are listening that this survey week was in front of the entire southern half of the United States going bananas over crazy virus and locking down bars and restaurants again. So there's two problems that come up with this. Number one is that in order to keep your PPP money and not have to pay it back, you had to keep people on the payroll until the end of June. Uh, It's the end of June. 
<laughs> the survey week was the second week of June. So now when you have these disruptions, the people that get laid off are going to get fired. And that's going to be the end of that. The second thing is that the BLS has some methodology problems, which they've acknowledged in their footnotes when it comes to people who have been, uh, quote unquote, furloughed under these PPP loans. And so they're counting people that are not working as working and they're counting people that have been have been called back on this basis. And so there's. The data is inconsistent internally, which makes it very hard to tease out exactly what's going on. But there's no reason to believe that these gains are going to be durable for any, you know, for any stretch of the of the population. You look at uh, what has just happened here with July 4th. I mean, you know, leisure and hospitality, think about it, all around the country, leisure and hospitality, July 4th weekend is one of three big ones, right? Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day. And... Uh, I challenge you to go look at what the occupancy numbers look like in hotels anywhere in the United States. They were terrible. Um, where I live, there normally you could not get a hotel room. Not uh, out of all of the hotels in this area, maybe one out of ten was sold out for the weekend. And uh, you know that that of course hits all of the other establishments. So I uh, this is this is the Federal Reserve and Congress pumping money into the economy through these PPP loans. But this is a short-term thing. It's kind of like uh, you know taking a shot of of meth or smoking a crank pipe when you're extremely tired. Well, yeah, it gets you up, but uh, it doesn't actually solve the problem. So, Carl, when you look at uh, mortgage delinquency rates, I think from March to May they almost doubled, um, and that's with you know as you say all this newly created money floating around uh, when the extra. Federal unemployment benefit of $600 a week goes away at the end of July. Uh, how high do you think that mortgage delinquency rate could actually go? Do you have any thoughts? Not really. Um, part of the, you know, part of the problem is that's not being counted completely either because you have all anything that was underwritten by the government. Of course, that's most of your loans. The majority of mortgage paper is Fannie, Freddie, and VA, um, as well as FHA. And so if you were on one of those loans, you haven't had to pay for the last three months or thereabouts. The problem is that there isn't any clean indication of exactly what they're going to do with that. Now, what there, I know somebody who actually took one of those deals because he was laid off, couldn't work. And when he went ahead and did it, he called me and he says, you know, it doesn't really say what's going to happen at the end of the three months. Am I going to have to make all three months of payment at once? Are they going to put it on the back of the loan and count it as three more months of, you know, that I have to pay? What are they going to do? And it wasn't clearly delineated. And I said, well, you, you need to expect that what's going to happen is they're going to turn around and say, give me all the money or lose your house. And, and that has to be your planning that you have to make because you haven't been promised anything else. So I don't know. I think the it, it, there's going to be a tremendous political incentive to try to keep some form of support under the economy, especially in the housing market. Uh, but you can't do it forever. And if you try to, you're going to see the kinds of things that have already happened to some extent, uh, you know, in meat prices, for example, um, real inflation that hits real people is going to start taking off in ways they can't control. So I'm 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 
very much a skeptic right now that this is something that is all going to be, you know, over and going back more towards normal within the next two or three months. You know, Carl, I was reading a piece uh, written by Egon von Greyer. It's of Matterhorn Capital. And he said that uh, by his numbers, since 2006, global debt has gone from $125 trillion to $275 trillion. Not to mention that since this coronavirus epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, hit, um, governments and central banks around the world have printed about, uh, printed and borrowed about $18 trillion. So when you say that this can't go on forever, I think all our listeners would say, well, yeah, you can't have debt increase in 14 years by two and a half times. Um, can they reflate this bubble one more time, or is the Fed completely out of ammunition? Well, they're certainly going to try. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, this is always the, you know, the question is, when do you pull back from this? But if you remember, uh, there was, uh, you know, this was done in the 1970s, the 1960s, 1970s, which was part of an extension of the repression paradigm that was put in place after World War II. And, and everybody thought they'd gotten away with that for an extended period of time. And we went through a 20-year period where, yeah, there were labor problems and there were, you know, there were little dislocations here and there. But everybody seemed to be doing all right, and it seemed that we'd gotten a free lunch. And then all of a sudden, the CPI started to take off like a rocket ship. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the 13 14% inflation. And the only thing that they could realistically do at that point was yank it back. Uh, raise rates to compensate, and everybody that was that was overlevered got creamed. The problem now is that that overleverage isn't in the broader economy, which is where most of it was at the time. Now it's mostly in federal, state, and local debt, along with corporate debt. So, you know, everybody came to the party this time around, and for the last several cycles of this. So I don't know what they do when they get backed into the corner. Well, and Carl, when you take a look at what the Fed's doing, I mean, we've got some really extreme, seems like, you know, really desperate policies. I mean, banks are operating on a 0% reserve requirement. Uh, the Fed is buying corporate bonds. I mean, they're uh, potentially loaning money now to state and local governments. And obviously, there's no money for this unless they just create it. So uh, doesn't it seem like they're just about out of bullets and they're just trying, you know, they're trying to the Hail Mary pass? Well, yeah, and see, the thing is, is it's happening all over the world right now because, you know, the COVID thing isn't just a U.S.-centric phenomenon. But the the mismanagement of, of what happened here is stunning in its breadth. And even more stunning is that we allowed uh, a man, Dr. Fauci, who was responsible for something on the same sort of scale back in the early days of AIDS, uh, to, to have any sort of power or any sort of, uh, you know, policy lever, if you will, that he could yank with this thing. Um, I don't know how many of the listeners are, you know, are old enough to remember this or do remember it. I, I certainly am, of course, you know, being that this is RLA, it's probably a decent percentage. But if, if you recall, what happened was that the original prescription for solving the AIDS epidemic was to put anybody that tested positive for HIV on AZT. AZT was a failed cancer drug. It caused actual harm. That was why it was never marketed for cancer, because it killed people. And we put, it, we put people on AZT, and a couple of years later, we found out that it actually destroyed bone marrow and T-cells, which just incidentally happened to be what HIV goes after. And so it made people's infections worse instead of better. 
um, and all the way, even even three, four years after we knew this scientifically, Fauci was still out there pushing this as a as a mainline treatment for people that had this disease. Yeah, not a not a sterling track record. So, do, do you think that uh, th- that this whole lockdown phenomenon is going to continue, or do you think that uh, you know that the consensus will be that you know the, uh, the the cure is potentially worse than the problem? Well, you can't continue it. It's I mean, at the end of the day, what pays for public health? Taxes. You know, <laughs> businesses. You know, any tax? You don't know, any public health. I mean, that's, you know, it's basic mathematics. The other problem you have with this is, is that we have learned rather rapidly a number of things that we are, we're deliberately ignoring about this. And there are medical centers that are not paying attention to the NIH, not paying attention to the CDC, and they're having great success. So the Henry Ford system in Michigan is one of them. Um, they, they started a trial um, using hydroxychloroquine very early at admission, which is the only time you'd expect it to work. Once you get really sick, you wouldn't expect it to do anything for you at all. Um, and they cut the death rate by 50%. And if you read their paper on this, uh, these were all people that had very serious other health conditions that could have killed them anyway. So, I mean, you know, for example, people with chronic renal disease, or kidney failure kills people all the time. And, and yeah, you know, these are people that they were... Re- you know, they were saving. Now, they didn't save everybody. And no, you know, no treatment saves everybody for anything. All right. That's just the way it works. But if you take that and then you deal with the fact that this virus is not playing by the rules of physics when it comes to airborne transmission, which we've now known for about a decade and a half, uh, we now know why we have a flu season in short. And it's physics. It has nothing to do with whether you're outside more or anything else. It is, is purely a phenomenon of physics and how, you know, how air uh, picks up water vapor and how that condenses, which, of course, you know, makes clouds and everything else. And that is why this happens. Well, this virus is not playing by those rules, and that means it's not being spread that way. And nobody, absolutely nobody wants to go there because as soon as you do, what it tells you is that the, one of the largest vectors at least initially, is actually the healthcare system itself. It's people in the hospitals and the employees in the nursing homes. And, it, and oh, by the way, about half the people who have died of this thing died in a nursing home. So, you know, that's where the science tells you you should be looking, but that's not, that, boy, is that politically incorrect. So nobody wants to go there, and we'll see. Um, but I think that the, the more interesting thing about this is that as treatment opportunities go on, um, we're going to have to make a decision because the idea that people are going to walk around this country for years with masks on is, and, and we're going to have any kind of a normal economy is just BS. Absolutely. There, there will be not one restaurant or bar that survives under that paradigm. There will not be one conference that is ever held. There will not be one bit of leisure travel that actually manages to stay afloat. And so if, if we want to take uh, 20% or so of our economy and cut it off and throw it in the garbage can forever, then, um, you know, that's the, that's the choice we're making here. Or do we accept that this virus is not going away? It's going to be around for a long time. The science tells us that the vaccine is very unlikely to ever work. And therefore, we just have to suck it up and deal with it. Well, our guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. I'll continue my conversation with Carl when we return. Stay with us.
I'm Dennis Stuberg, and you're listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. My guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific blogger. Uh, you can read his commentary at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to do that. And you know, Carl, we have had conversations on past programs, and uh, I think of all the guests I talk to, you seem to have a, a better handle than anybody on uh, how much healthcare has grown in this country as a percentage of the economy. And it's not because we have more doctors and nurses. It's grown uh, purely administratively. And you talked about how that has to end. It has to stop. It's growing too fast. So I'd like you to comment on just the growth, if you would. And then uh, is this particular coronavirus pandemic going to be the uh, the, the, the twisted irony that, that finally reverses that growth? Well, I think it may end up being a knife in the back that ends up reversing a lot of things, but not in the way people would like uh, when it comes to that aspect of things. I mean, there's, you know, one of the problems that you have right now is that everybody is is looking for how do I come up with a three or five or $10,000 solution to this per patient, and then essentially shove it down everybody's throat. And, and as, you know, as I referenced in the last segment, that's exactly what happened with HIV AIDS. And, you know, we had the NIH and, uh, you know, and the, the people who are doing it now, doing it then, and they didn't really care whether or not it worked or was effective. All they cared about was that people made a lot of money. Um, the problem is that we've, we've bloated the system to the point that now, um, you know, at the time, AZT was the most expensive retail price drug ever marketed in the United States. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, it, it actually by today's standards, is reasonably cheap. <laughs> oh, I mean, the stuff that's come out in the last 10 years or so, some of it is just breathtaking. And, and you know, well, the Sovaldi, the, uh, the cure for hepatitis C, which actually is a cure, so, I mean, there's actually some benefit there to be had, of $80,000, which uh, was, uh, you know, I mean, that would... 20 years ago, that would have been an unthinkable amount of money charged for anything. And yet that is not an unusual sort of pricing model. So the, the problem you also have with these hospitals is if you think about it, what everybody's worried about is that we're going to run out of capacity. People are going to, you know, there's, then you're going to have a heart attack. And there's nowhere to go, right? And you're not going to get sick with the bug. You're just going to have an ordinary thing that happens to people every day happen to you. And there won't be anywhere for you to go because the hospitals are full of people who have, you know, they have the, have the Kung flu. And so we don't want to go there. That's bad. That is a serious problem. But, it, it, gee, we have an awful lot of, a lot of space in those hospitals. It isn't full of beds for patients. It's full of administrative offices, don't we? I mean, uh, you know, think, think about the craziness with that. You've got 10 administrators for every doctor or nurse. Well, what if we actually had all that space for people that were sick? So, Carl, to what would you attribute, I mean, maybe maybe money is the short answer, but to what would you attribute this massive growth in healthcare administration? Um, well, it is money to a large degree. It's also, there's, there's a basic problem that comes in anytime that insurance gets involved uh, in any business. And that is that an insurance company charge is, is a regulated entity. Okay? There's no such thing as an insurance company that exists in a so-called free market. So if you run an insurance company, you are typically capped making 
on whatever revenue you take in. Okay, you have a ten percent profit margin. That's just all your, and that's considered a reasonable amount. Well, there's a problem with that. How do you how do you grow your company? The only way to grow it is for the things that happen to become more expensive or more frequent or both. And so, any time that you have a compulsory kind of system in place, this happens. Your listeners who have who live in Michigan, you've seen this in your car insurance for forty years. Okay, no fault insurance was supposed to be something that would save the people in Michigan a huge amount of money. And yet, oh, what happened? Okay, all of a sudden it costs, you know, $7,000 to insure a car in Detroit. And part of that is because it gets stolen a lot. But part of it is also because if you get in a car accident, the MRI costs six times as much as it does as if you twist your very same ankle walking your dog on the sidewalk. And they get away with this because of the monopolists are not put in jail. We haven't done anything about this in 40 years. And so now all of a sudden, you know, oops, here we are. And that happens in any industry where a compulsory purchase of insurance gets tied into any marketplace. And that's, the, that's ultimately what's happened. We locked this in to employment. So it got hidden from the average person. That threatened to collapse in 2000, around the 2006, 2007 timeframe when we had the financial crisis. And in comes Barack Obama and the Democrat Party. Nancy Pelosi, and with, with, by the way, as you've seen over the last, you know, how many years now, uh, the consent of the, of the Republicans, so don't tell me that they were actually against it. Um, here, here comes compulsory insurance purchases. We're going to put everybody in pools, and what happens? We just crank the business up to a larger degree, and the price goes up, um, because the only way for the health insurance company to make more money is you either have to have more things go wrong with you, or the things that go wrong with you have to cost more to fix. And since humans haven't really changed in a million years, well, you tell me which one it's going to be. Yeah, for sure. So, Carl, talk a little bit about Medicare, because we, we have the federal government with uh, massive amounts of debt. I mean, we could see a 3 to $4 trillion deficit this year. Uh, Social Security and Medicare are really underfunded, Medicare in particular. Uh, if someone's listening to this today and they're 65 years old, just going on to Medicare, what kind of changes would you envision? What kind of changes, in your view, does the math dictate that they might see in the level of care that might be available to them? I think you have to assume that within the next three to four years, Medicare is going to collapse entirely. I, that's, that's been my base case. I put a 2024 date on this back in the 1990s. And actually, I believe my original estimate was 2026. So, right, so I'm off a couple. Um, but about 10 years ago, when I went back and reran those models and the acceleration and, and the historical trends had not changed a bit, even with Obamacare mm -hmm. coming in, and they still haven't. Um, and now you've got this, which has accelerated that to some degree. So maybe it's a year ahead of that. Uh, I think anybody who is currently on, you know, if, if you think you're going to live for more than another four years, uh, you have to assume that Medicare is going to disappear. And so the only thing, or, or if, it, if it's available, it won't be worth anything. So if you're going to, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from that perspective, you need to do everything in your power to not need it and make peace with God. Because when, you know, when inevitably age gets us all and you get to the point that, uh, you know, those tough decisions have to be made, you're not going to be able to go say, hey, doc, you know, I need a new hip, I need a new, you know, whatever and uh, expect that Medicare is going to be there to cover it because it's not going to happen. Um, 
that's just the mathematics of it. There isn't anything that can be done about it. I, I, people say, well, raise taxes. It doesn't make any difference. Medicare is a program that only takes in approximately 20% of what it pays out on an average year basis. It is impossible for that to continue. You couldn't raise taxes enough to cover it. You'd have to raise them by 500%. That is not going to happen. That program is going to collapse. Now, Social Security, on the other hand, which the politicians like to put together, has a funding deficit at present. But number one, um, the conversion of the, of the reserves that it has, which will go directly onto the main federal balance sheet, um, are sufficient to cover this until the people from the boomer generation and such pass away from old age. And secondly, if we wanted to close the cash funding gap, we could do it today through a relatively modest tax increase on the FICA tax and or lifting the cap on income or some combination of the two, uh, which they will eventually do because if Social Security collapses, then you probably get riots and mass civil unrest. I mean, I, the last thing that any government wants is 50 million old people that have nothing to lose. Their children are grown and gone. The only, the only dependent they have left is their cat, and they're mad as hell, and you can only give them one death sentence. And oh, by the way, it's coming in another couple of years, even if they do nothing. So, Carl, when you talk about the Medicare math and that this problem cannot possibly be solved through higher taxes, um, doesn't it seem logical that you know the, 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 the Fed will step in and, and try to monetize that? And, and to what extent do you think, uh, since that seems to be the only policy. It's like inflate, inflate, inflate. Uh, don't you think they'll try to inflate to keep that alive? And then we have a currency issue. Do, how do you see that playing out? You, you can't do it. It's, I mean, if you run the discounted cash flow analysis on that, it's something like $140 trillion. It's impossible. It's, if they tried to do that, then a, a pound of steak would be $100. You, you wouldn't be able to buy enough food to eat on your social security check. It's, it, it's an impossible problem to solve through that kind of a, I mean, this is, this is you know, when, you, when you've got a, a 10 or 15% funding deficit, like you do with social security, there are things you can do. You can do things with fiscal policy, you can do things with tax policy. Um, you, you can try to short people on what they were told they were going to get, okay, which they might try to do. Um, I don't think that'll be the way they go. But you could even absorb that into the inflation base and people would be angry, but it wouldn't kill them. If you try to do something with Medicare of that sort of general approach, there's no way the country survives. Well, and Carl, I've had some really bright guests on the program who say that, you know, that that's what's going to happen, that they're going to print and print and print. And we're uh, going to see uh, all these dollars uh, uh, come back to the United States and that, uh, you know, the, the dollar will fail as a currency and, and that we'll see every fiat currency around the world go the way of every fiat currency historically and we're going to have this reset. And there seems to be some talk about that now. You hear some of these radical ideas uh, about, you know, a, a capitalism reset. And, uh, you know, that uh, reminds me of Rahm Emanuel who famously said, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, but, yeah. but do you think that's a, a, a possibility? Not really, because you can print money, but you can't print cars, you can't print chickens, you, you, you can't print a house. Uh, people actually have to go and build things and do things in order for there to be an economy. And if, I mean, might they try it? Yes. 
if they do, there are no safe assets. There is nowhere to hide. You may as well, if, if you're old and you're in that senior cohort, um, then you may as well go take out your anger on the people in government and do it you know, in the, in the only way you're going to be able to do it, which is not going to be pleasant. Um, and unfortunately, you're probably going to get joined by all the younger people who find themselves unemployed and have no money to buy food. And uh, that's, you know, that's exactly how you end up with a, a Bosnia or Rwanda kind of scenario. I, I don't want to see that kind of thing happen. But I, that's I mean, the people that say that they're going to, you know, they're just going to print and print and print and print. And that's, and, you know, that's going to be their answer. Um, if they're right, then that's where it leads. And I would hope that the people at the Federal Reserve and the people in the Congress and the people in the government uh, don't decide to literally blow their own brains out because that's what they're going to be doing. Well, that's a uh, that's not where I want to leave it, but the clock says that's where we're going to have to leave it. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, his blog can be read at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, always appreciate your perspective. Love to have you back down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is RLA Radio. Glad you tuned in today. Hey, I want to talk to you in this segment a little bit more about where all this money printing might lead. Alistair McLeod, who's an analyst that I respect very much and a past guest here on the program multiple times, had this to say about debt levels, the banking system, and the response by the Federal Reserve this past week. He said, for now, monetary policy is to buy off all reality by printing money without limit, and almost no one is thinking about the consequences. He said that the monetary policy is to print money without limit which is in effect buying off all reality, and no one is thinking about, or at least outwardly talking about, the consequences. Now, the whole idea of printing all this money is to stimulate the economy, avoid a recession or avoid a depression. However, Mr. McLeod correctly points out that getting money out into the real economy is proving difficult. Banks are not wanting to loan money. As Mr. McLeod puts it, banks are wanting to reduce their balance sheets. They're reluctant to expand credit. They don't want to loan money to customers that are already delinquent in their mortgages. In fact, as I said, we could expect commercial loan, commercial bank loan delinquency rates to get to maybe 12% here by year end. And mortgage delinquency rates are already at 8%, doubling from March. With consumers in that situation, banks obviously don't want to loan them more money. So it's difficult to get money out into the real economy. And Mr. McLeod adds that banks today are weaker than they were ahead of the last credit crisis, which saw Lehman and Bear Stearns fail. We just had a quarter end pass. June 30, the quarter ended. That's typically when you get more demand for notes and payments. We don't know how many payment failures were, there were at the end of the quarter, but 
We will know by the end of the month. In fact, Mr. McLeod says payment failures on the June quarter day just passed could trigger a systemic crisis before this month is out. He says this, and I quote, Sooner or later, bank failures are inevitable and will be a wake-up call for markets. Monetary inflation will then become an obvious issue as central banks and government treasury department become, departments become desperate to prevent an economic slump by doing the only thing they know how to do, inflate or die. Mr. McLeod says that central banks and governments only know how to do one thing now in response to a potential economic slump, and that is print money. And one of the unintended consequences of creating all these U.S. dollars is what foreigners who hold dollars will decide to do. Mr. McLeod says foreigners who are incredibly long of dollars, means they have a lot of dollars and dollar assets, will almost certainly start a chain of events leading to significant falls in the dollar's purchasing power. And when ordinary Americans finally begin to discard their dollars in favor of goods, the dollar will be finished along with all fiat currencies that are tied to it. Now, this looming crisis Mr. McLeod talks about um, in the banking system is one that's going to be a much larger problem than we saw in 2006, 2007, and 2008. And the bailout required will be far larger. And there's only one way that bailout will be funded, by more money printing. So the likely outcome? Stagflation. We'll see low economic output, but rising, likely very rapidly rising, prices. Now, if you want to know how much money has been created since COVID-19 hit, just in the last three months, world governments and central banks have borrowed and printed a combined total of $18 trillion in the last three months. There's been $18 trillion, the equivalent of $18 trillion, created out of thin air in the last three months. That's mind-boggling. In fact, to help you put that number into perspective, if you counted quickly, never made a mistake, and never went back to start again at the beginning, it would take you 32,000 years to count to a trillion. 32,000 years it would take to count to one trillion And in the last three months, governments and central banks have borrowed and printed a combined total of $18 trillion. As a side note, it would take you about 600,000 years to count to $18 trillion. The amount of fiat currency in existence since COVID hit has increased by almost 50% worldwide in the last three months. That's alarming. If you don't have an inflation hedge, I would encourage you to strongly consider adding one to your portfolio. You certainly need to have a deflation hedge as well. The Revenue Sourcing Book is designed to help you develop a revenue sourcing map to figure out how to do this in your situation. If you've not yet requested your free copy of the book today, we are making it available for free. Revenue sourcing uh, was a number one bestseller on Amazon in four categories. We'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the book. 
Just go to revenuesourcingbook.com. Let us know where to mail it, and we'll be glad to do that. The website, again, is revenuesourcingbook.com. And there are also additional resources available to you at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can go back and listen to the podcasts of this program, all the guest expert interviews that we've done. And you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's Portfolio Watch. And there is a spot on the website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to sign up for the newsletter. That's delivered to you every Monday at 5 p.m. after the market closes. And it'll let you know from our perspective what's going on in the economy, the markets, and what you should be considering. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.